Welcome to Stream Detroit, the show about cool people doing cool shit. I'm your host, Mike McClintock. We're here with Brad Fox down at Grand Circus uh, in the big room that we normally aren't in. So when you hear the, uh, the water rushing through the uh, pipes, don't worry about it. Uh, we're here with Jamie Began from the founder and CEO of uh, Right Brain Networks. How you doing? Doing pretty well. Thanks for coming Thank all the way down from uh, Ann Arbor on this uh, little soggy uh, Detroit evening. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Right Brain. What are you guys doing down there in Ann Arbor now? Sure. We're uh, basically a cloud computing consulting company or engineering company. Mm-hmm. And what we help uh, uh, other companies kind of move to the cloud. Generally, we're working with software companies that actually have a large investment in, uh, say, their applications or, or a product that they're actually building from, from scratch to learn in the cloud. And we basically cloud enable these custom or bespoke written applications. Okay. So like you do you like uh, Amazon Web Services, AWS? Yep. We're, we're primarily working with AWS or Amazon Web Services, which is uh, mm-hmm. much a lot of people surprise that Amazon, you know, the same bookstore company is kind of the biggest player in the cloud computing space. Yep. Um, and that's what we do is we help people kind of move their workloads from their traditional physical or virtual servers onto Amazon's cloud. Okay. So you're doing, I guess you'd call that DevOps. We hear a lot of these words like DevOps mm-hmm. and cloud and application development for the cloud. Um, you know, a lot of people say cloud. I think you ask 10 people what cloud means, you get 10 different uh, definitions. Give us the definitive. Oh, the definitive. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to anoint you right now. Yeah, big data. Gonna, this We're going to ask you what big data is this next. Is a, exactly. This is a big moment in internet history. What does cloud mean? I mean, the cloud is... Uh, you know, somebody else's equipment, essentially. Okay. Equipment that you don't own, broadly speaking. You know, in this case, Amazon owns all these computers and you're renting them per hour. Mm-hmm. So if you need 100 servers for two days or two hours, you, you can buy 100 servers and shut them down you're not charged, which is really the huge benefit for our customers who are, you know, say, you know, into it. People make uh, TurboTax and QuickBooks and stuff like that as one of our largest clients. Mm-hmm. And they have an extreme need for a lot of processing power come tax time, but maybe this time of year they don't. So they can scale up and scale down. That's kind of the benefit of cloud. So you handle the not only the infrastructure part of that, the scaling up, the scale down, the elasticity of that. Mm-hmm. Do you do um, application development for mm-hmm. them, or, or you just support their their application development? Yeah, you already kind of hit on kind of our areas of specialty. You mentioned DevOps a little mm-hmm. bit earlier. Um, DevOps and cloud are kind of the two sides of the same coin. DevOps is kind of the process that enables movement to the cloud. And the cloud is kind of the infrastructure that resides on. You can do DevOps without cloud and cloud without DevOps, but it's it's kind of silly to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a large part of moving to the cloud is um, application rearchitecture. Or if you're building a brand new application from the start, you kind of have to understand how clouds different to take full advantage of it. So yes, we do have uh, software engineers and kind of your traditional op- IT operations engineers. Okay. So so how is it a little bit different? You know, why, why, how do you re-architect an app from, say, the old model of, like, client-server where it's all behind, you know, it's on your network, in your firewall, physical presence, hardware, stuff like that. How do you re-architect the apps so that it, it works in the cloud? What's different? Sure. So, I mean, I'll give you the, kind of going back to the Intuit example before, you know, previously mm-hmm. they'd sell TurboTax. You'd go to Best Buy and once a year and you buy the CD-ROM and install it in your software. In your computer, yep. and you'd be responsible for making it work, and you didn't have to worry about if your data was interfering with somebody else's. Mm-hmm. When you kind of move that all to the cloud, and everybody's computers are all, everybody's data is kind of intermixed, that introduces possibilities of you know, data or data breach. You know, so security becomes much more important. Um, scalability. You know, suddenly when you've got a rush of you know thousands or millions of people using your software, April fourteenth, exactly. So you 
there's just some unique challenges. You know, it's again a multi-tenancy when you're talking about databases and scalability and security. Those become very much more real problems when you're, you're moving to cloud, and it just requires a, a bit of expertise and ability to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. So but ultimately, so what are the? I mean, if you're if you're a company, certainly it's it's a lot more complex than all of us probably have our own Dropbox accounts and box, but it's similar in a different scale though, right? So instead of a consumer just moving a bunch of stuff to a cloud service like Dropbox, orders of magnitude more complex. So I mean, how, do you, how do you guys think about that aspect? How do you kind of break that down? So if you're breaking it down from a consumer like me, how do you guys scale? I mean, that's a massive task I would imagine going from, you know, moving somebody like that having your clients trust you enough to say, okay, we got to move from old world to kind of new world. What does that process look for, like for you guys? Sure. Well, the biggest thing is when you have these moving pieces, um, let's say that, you know, I don't know, you're, you're launching a brand new movie and it's premiere night. Um, and for some reason you have a website that's supporting that, perhaps you're you know, selling some sort of downloadable content. You might need a hundred servers to actually be able to serve that. And then a week later, you might only need four. Maybe in the next hour, you only need four. So you've got these computers that are constantly turning on and turning off, and your application has to be built to support that. So when a brand new server comes on, it has to know how to configure itself and kind of join the pod, so to speak. And when your application no longer needs that load and things start kind of turning off, your application has to be able to sustain you know, uh, The application has to be able to uh, adapt to that matter. So meaning, you know, most computers, if you, or most applications, if you turn off a computer, the application breaks. In this instance, you actually have to uh, account for that. So the, the cloud, so there, you, it's a lot of hardware. What happens? What happened to all the old hardware that people were like these big giant server farms or whatever, whatever they had. Like I remember uh, I grew up in the ad agency world. We had this one room. It was like the server room and it had like an elevated floor and all these pipes. What happened mm -hmm. to that stuff? I mean, what, what is one of the, what are the drivers? I mean, other than... It's going away. It's going away. And I kind of relate it back to a hundred years ago, every factory in Detroit had their own on-premises on power plant, their own mm -hmm. electrical generators. And every day, everybody would show up, you'd have the linemen, the dynamo tenders, the guy who basically ran the thing, and your electricians just making sure that the electricity came on. And then we actually you know, invented an efficient distribution medium, you know, all, all the main current and a few other technologies around that. So we could centralize electrical generation and distribute it to people who need it. We got the economies of scale. It's the exact same thing that's happening now. We're centralizing computer operations, and we've got this high-speed internet, which is our distribution medium. So what you're going to eventually see is people just kind of plug into the wall, and you're going to have your entire compute and your storage right there in the wall. And we really aren't that far from a consumer standpoint today with, as you mentioned, Dropbox and everybody's mobile devices. Mm -hmm. Enterprise is a much more complicated system, so it's going to take longer to get there, but we will eventually get there. Okay. Our enterprises right now is that... Are they looking at you know ten year horizons? I mean, do they have big plans now to say we got to get rid of these boxes mm -hmm. and move it all onto AWS or Rackspace or whatever? Right. So most large companies have a hardware refresh cycle. Uh -huh. Generally, they they aren't buying equipment; they're leasing it, so they're on right. lease terms. So generally, about four years out, they're doing a hardware refresh. So we're seeing a lot of companies that are taking that money where they would normally be going out there and leasing new equipment and actually putting that budget into rebuilding their applications to be more cloud compatible and then just moving that workload to the cloud. Is that like just a, that's a big trend right now? Like a, yes. A tsunami of... Yeah, they, they tend to call it cloud first initiative. Like okay. It's kind of the board level speak for that type mm -hmm. of uh, initiative. Yes. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. That's what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. You know, 
five years ago, I mean, did anybody even know what this was? I mean, unless you were like a Y Combinator company, you probably really, most, most, most enterprises really didn't understand what AWS was. How, how does, how do you get started in something like that in such a, an industry that's basically, I mean, what, the last four or five years, it's really become something. How do you get started in that? So I've actually been using, I've right? been using AWS since 06, which won the beta yep. existed. This was before you had this nice console where you can launch computers. You actually had to do everything via the Java SDK. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very cumbersome. Um, and there was no persistent storage. You couldn't actually store data on the individual computers themselves. So it's come a long way in just a short period of time. Um, I believe Amazon's releasing like 200 new features per year, and that rate's only increasing. So they've got about 80 different services now that comprise Amazon Web Services. So, you know, it, it's kind of matured quite a bit to the point where enterprises are now finding the tooling that they need to actually do their kind of customized workload, mainly around security and uh, compliance, that, that type of thing, which is more, you know, important to larger businesses. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, how did you get started with it? Um, I mean, you're right, it really got started in kind of the Y Combinators and the, and the incubators, other incubators and startups, basically guys who couldn't afford to buy the equipment. So mm -hmm. therefore, they had to pay per hour because they didn't know whether the start was, was going to work or not. To make much sense, and that's half a million dollars in equipment. But as they've kind of proven the market and proven the model, um, a lot of these other companies um, are having to adapt to that. So and again, I'm going back into it, but you know, there, there's a lot of companies out there that are kind of nipping it into its uh, heels. A lot of these you know, startup software companies that are trying mm -hmm. to do tax and stuff like that. Um, into it has to move to the cloud model because. They've got to be able to innovate quickly. If mm -hmm. they're having to release CDs once a year, that's not enough rate of oh, innovation. Right. People have to be innovating and releasing monthly, in some cases daily. And it, it just it, it injects much more agility into these larger companies who, who are, you know, are being run over by a bunch of these smaller, less capitalized companies just mm -hmm. because they can't afford to keep up. Right. Yeah, because you don't need a, a $500,000 Sun box to run your startup like you mm -hmm. did in 1994. Right. You can be, you know, the free tier on there is hey, you get one, one well, it's free yeah, it's, and then move it up uh, incrementally and build that into your model so that you just you know it doesn't it's a it's a function of paying customers how many servers you have to turn on all right and let's say you blow up overnight even if you had half a million dollars how long is it going to take you to get this up ordered provision right, right stack right it, it, here you, you do it in a matter of hours right right exactly so you got you're bootstrapped you know, did you start as a consultant and then build your consultancy up? Did you start out and say, yeah, I'm going to build this big agency? No, we didn't, we didn't start off as a cloud practice. We've only been doing that for about three years now. Uh -huh. Really, this came out of necessity. Um, I was actually working at a, a, as an IT manager for a microchip engineering company. I actually started here in Detroit when we actually moved to Ann Arbor. And then I was laid off in October 2008. And oddly enough, the same week I was laid off, I bought a house and got married. So oh, that's it was perfect. Pretty good, eventful Good week. things come in threes. For sure, sure for yeah. sure. So in case of vodka, <laughs> that's Jesus. four. Huh? That's no, four things. There's certainly a lot of that too. Because, <laughs> I mean, if you recall, October 2008 was not a good time to be unemployed in Michigan. So yeah, I, was, yeah. I was very much in good company. You know, like a lot. That kind of sucks. Yeah, well, that's a downer. Yeah, it's, you buy this beautiful house and you sit in here. Knowing you can't afford it once the seasons go by, right? It was, it was the most difficult period in my life, right? And it's, it's a lot. It accounts for a large part of where, where I'm in today. Was, okay, you know, just the tenacity to stick with it. You know, those were kind of dark times. I don't really want to go back to that. But you know, I looked for work for going on six months mm -hmm. and went on plenty of interviews and you know, even you know, second and third interviews. I sent out over a hundred resumes, still couldn't find anything. And you know, one day I just kind of woke resumes up. Resumes and no nibbles. 
Well, I got a few nibbles, just nobody that wanted to reel me in, I guess, right. so to speak. And and I didn't understand why that was happening. You know, perhaps I wasn't interviewing. So one, you were but... you were typically used to having a job. Oh yeah. At that point, and yeah. then you know the bottom just falls out, right. and you're like, all right, now what? I'm out of vodka. Uh, now what am I gonna do? Is this yeah. the is this your entrepreneurial journey at this at this point? Are we, are Pretty we... much. Okay. I mean, you know. I mentioned that I'd yet just gotten married, and yeah. you know, that was a pretty rough time to go through a new marriage. Yeah. But, but luckily, you know, I have a wonderful wife who supported me and you know encouraged me to keep going. So that, that's a large part of why I was able to do that. Right. But yeah, I woke up one day and I'm, like, I'm not, not sending another resume. Just ain't not going to happen. Something snapped me. I'm like, I'm not going to try to tell people why that I should be allowed to make them money. Right. So I knew I had a valuable skill set. So I, you know what? Forget yeah, it. This you literally woke work. up one day and yes. said, "Damn it." Yeah, I actually remember it this way. I'm remember not working for the man. Yeah. Remember sitting down on my computer. It's like, all right, let's go find some more jobless. And like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. I'm like, I, I just can't. I can't handle it anymore. It was like sending out resumes into the abyss and never hearing back. Right. You know? So that's, you know, that's why it's really important to me when we bring people in for an interview is at Right Parade, if we choose that they're not a good fit for them, that they, they actually get an acknowledgement, a personal acknowledgement to say, you know, hey, we appreciate you, you're a good person, here's some of the things that we really liked about you, we found another good candidate. I mean, mm -hmm. if people had just done that for me, I probably yeah. would never have kind of ended up where I was emotionally. So, yeah, yeah I, I try, I, if you look at some of our videos on our website, one of the lines that I say in there that's really important to me is that I built the company that I wanted to work in. And okay. that's what I continue to do, and that's what keeps me going. But, you know, back then, I didn't have a company, so, you know, it was just basically me deciding to do freelance. Mm -hmm. My background's kind of unique. Um, or at least different. Yeah. Where uh, I've done both systems engineering, you know, firewall, you know, OS kind of type stuff, and I'm a fairly decent software developer. Mm -hmm. Developer, so that's kind of unusual. But and so I was doing kind of freelance web development work, and I was actually you know fixing Exchange Server and installing servers and stuff like that for small businesses. But, but as, as the company kind of grew, I had to make a decision: which which company did I want to build? Because they're mm -hmm. very different business models. Right. Decided to like to build stuff, so I actually started doing more web development, software engineering, and I started hiring software engineers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a software development company is a very undifferentiated. It's a very difficult business to be in, mm -hmm. especially as a solo practitioner. Yeah. You're competing against guys in India working for nine bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of struggled through that. Um, I was getting whatever work I could get off of Craigslist and tapping my own network. And this is when you're still uh, uh, like basically freelancing yep. right? before you started hiring people. Yeah, this is about the first six months or so. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to say, screw this Odesk thing? Um, not that long, though, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, What's an Odesk? Oh, it's like an on, it's like an Elance type thing where you it's an online marketing place where employers post jobs or gigs or whatever, and you bid on It's almost like a reverse. People bid. come and bid $9 an hour. Yeah. Okay, got it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, not, not to discourage, I mean, we used Elance, Odesk, mm -hmm. we, we found it kind of be a, a suspect, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, Elance was much better, though it was much harder to do, but mm -hmm. it, uh, Elance is difficult. Any of those type of markets are very difficult, but it, it really helped allow me to sharpen my sales skills, yeah. uh, which, which is very important. Um, it, you know, it helped us through some, some difficult periods, so I, mean, I, I, I had no problems with them. Um, but, you know, I, we, we started hiring, or I hired my first person about six months in. Mm -hmm. um, a developer or well, my very first yeah, my very first person was actually a part time office manager. Okay, uh, a great woman, but then uh, her husband was laid off, not surprisingly. And at that time, I couldn't afford health insurance for her, mm -hmm. so I actually got her a job working with my one of my clients at the time. So she's still there, so that worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's cool. So you know, software development firm. You know, I'm still doing a little bit of kind of work on the side, mm -hmm. uh, part of the company doing like uh, network support. 
And then we kind of just grew and grew a little bit. Um, it's still kind of hard to get work. You know, like I mentioned, it's a very competitive industry. It's like 08, 09. Well, this is like 09 now. Right? Yeah, this would be oh, at yeah, the end of 09, probably to the middle about 2010 or so. So it's you and like a couple other guys? Just one other guy at that point. Okay. Were you doing like fixed-based stuff? Big projects where you do an hourly, where you build straight a hourly, straight hourly. Yeah, and that was a difficult because you know, a big project's got to be difficult, right? Yeah, I mean, a big project for us at that time was like two or three thousand dollars, and okay. you know that doesn't keep even one you know, software right. owner employed for very long. Mm -hmm. So it was constantly worrying about making payroll. You know, to this day, I've yet to be late or miss payroll. So it's almost by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. There have been some lean times, but. Um, you know, hiring more, then we got a couple of big, bigger jobs and hired a few more people. And then really our growth didn't really occur until about last year. Um, up until about February, March of last year, we were still in four people. Okay. And, you know, mentioned that you know, I just hired four people in the past two weeks. So that puts us at 15. Wow. So, so you went from four to 15 in the last year? Yep. Wow. That's got to be like crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, my payroll right now every two weeks is almost double what I made the entire first year in business. Right. So, and, you know, so Wait, are you all are you all physically in the same location, or yes. are you doing like the virtual thing? No, nope. no. Nope, everybody's working on the same office in Ann Arbor, and that's one thing that I'm somewhat inflexible about, just no. because the industry is just growing so quickly. Like I can't put some guy offsite or hire somebody mm -hmm. and afford to have that knowledge all contained in his head. Because mm -hmm. the type the, the type of engineers I'm trying to hire don't really exist here. Yeah, we we invest heavily in on the job training, mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to do that when people are in kind of the similar locations. Right. So you use like Scrum and you got to yep. do your daily stand up and then yep. it all we works. Okay. So you got Agile Development, oh, Agile DevOps. Mm -hmm. And how do you, are, are you able to, you know, if you're dealing with like a Toyota or something or some big company, do they understand what Agile DevOps is now versus like well, three or four years ago, they were probably like, oh, huh? Well, that's it's kind of funny you mentioned Toyota. How do you sell that? Because that's what Toyota hired us to do, to modernize their software development process for the research group mm -hmm. here in Ann Arbor. So they're doing some pretty interesting work, but they needed to move faster, like a lot of large companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we kind of suggest the ways in which they could develop faster, and a large part of that is deploying code as well. Didn't they invent Kanban anyways, or something like that? Yeah, the Toyota production system. Maybe, maybe that was it. perhaps the single worst example I could have pulled out of my butt. Um, but like if another company, another big company, do they really understand what, what that it, means, it really or do they even care? They're going to have to care if they don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're doing waterfall now and they've got like all these bodies and a cubicle farm and stuff, how do they transition from from that model to uh, something where they can get on a faster release cycle, maybe doing continuous development? Because mm -hmm. it's not like they can reach. They're going to retrain all these people in house. Maybe they are. They're going to try to, but it's a different kind of breed of a person. So, do they know that that you can do that? And how do they understand that? That to me is like really interesting. It's like there's a, that big transition that's happening, but it's almost like people before they were like mobile. What you know? What, what are you talking about? People are going to do what with their phones? That's crazy talk, you know. But now it's like they've got to go, like you said, uh, be able to release monthly. You can't just release uh, something every year. You've right. got to keep going and kind of function almost like an internal startup. How, how do they understand that now? It really depends a lot on the company, and I think this is similar to mobile. It's pretty unusual to have somebody at the you know at the C level kind of buy into that. Mm -hmm. Generally, get like a one internal champion. And they may not be you know, the most powerful person there, but they tend to be the most vocal. 
mm -hmm. and just harping away. And they might get somebody's ear that has a little bit of budget to bring us in, and then we can kind of consult. And we, I mean, we're not going to try changing the entire culture overnight. We're right. doing on a per project basis. So we'll take this new initiative, the new exciting thing, and we'll apply some new and exciting ways of doing it. And then, you know, we, we hopefully will help them kind of integrate that in kind of their, their larger uh, ecosystem there as far as development goes. But it's, and they still do this on hourly? Yes. And the reason we do that is simply because we, many times we don't know what we're walking into. Right. Um, I mean, this stuff is so new. Mm -hmm. Like, I could spend three months kind of investigating and making recommendations, or we can just dive in there and kind of prioritize things as they come along. So you do, do you do sprints? Yes. Okay. So they're basically buying, essentially they're buying a, a, a sprint. Right. Depending on how many people are in there. So they might be buying three man sprints, let's call them. Mm -hmm. And and they understand that right. for the most part. Or or you have to educate them on that. Do you ever get pushback for that? And Sometimes. Um, and that's been some of the, the challenge with selling is just that there's so much education that has to go into it. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the people that we're selling against are like other Amazon partners that just have the Amazon logo on their line card because they have to because everybody's asking for cloud. Mm -hmm. you know, but we're, we're different. We'll actually help people rebuild their applications to take full advantage of cloud. Mm -hmm. So that can be a very expensive proposition up front to actually do that. But then you, you, you're spending a lot less per month on kind of the reoccurring hosting costs because your, your application scales automatically. Mm -hmm. And, you got, and then you're also blessed with continuous deployment. Exactly. So you wind, do you wind up doing any kind of training where, you know, they're like, hey, we really like this methodology. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they try to take what their internal waterfall process is maybe and try to move it towards that. Is that, are you seeing that happen? That's a huge part of the process. And it took me a long time to understand why so many people went in training and why we were having so much difficulty selling some things. Mm -hmm. It was a large a lot of these software companies are, or software departments within companies are tasked with maintaining existing legacy software, or your IT guys are tasked with maintaining this legacy equipment. And they know that this cloud stuff exists. Mm -hmm. um, they're looking for any excuse they can to do new cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And here we come, an outside consulting agency saying, give us some money and we'll do cool new stuff for you. And that doesn't go over so well. Right, because so. they want to do that. Exactly. They see the writing on the wall. Yeah, they want to get out, of, they they get out of Waterfall and stop maintaining this, this <clears throat> sucky payroll app. And For sure. They want to stop repairing typewriters. Right. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of what we've adjusted our messaging to that. So, you know, we're not, initially, not interested in getting in there to take credit. We want to make these guys look like the superheroes. Mm. Okay. Come in. So large part of that is, you know, we're not a magician because a magician doesn't share secrets, but we do. So we'll get in and we'll train you guys how we do what we do. You know, we're one of only six globally certified managed service providers for AWS. And there's just, six? There's six of it globally, and we're the only one, and the smallest one on there. So what's that mean? What's, but, what's globally certified? Well, I mean, there's only six companies worldwide that are certified to be a managed service provider in AWS. Really? And the reason we got that is we underwent a third-party audit. Uh -huh. So I, I flew out to Seattle and was grilled by three auditors across my table for almost seven hours. Okay. But our processes and documentation, I had to show them how to do stuff. And we took that same guidelines that we actually had to adhere to and spent weeks kind of you know, adjusting our processes to pass that. And we're training other organizations to kind of operate in the same manner. Wow. Sounds like an interrogation, but you know, ultimately very worth it. Yeah, so if you're one of six managed service providers, you get a lot of leads from Amazon. Themselves. So I mean, it probably it comes through. There's a kind of like MSDN or something or tech, TechNet with Microsoft where they mm -hmm. farm it out back out to the ISVs. Would you consider yourself an ISV now? An no, not, not really. Vendor? We work with more ISVs than, than, than we ought to consider myself that. Okay. Because we're not, with some exceptions, we're not really building our own product. We're helping other people build products. So an independent software vendor is is sourcing to you some of the development work 
for that, and then there, I guess they're basically selling it and doing the the growth hacking kind of thing mm-hmm. on it. And so you're the you're the rent you're the back office. Uh, well, you're the development staff for the modern day ISP. Right, and we're 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 not. So we'll build software applications for for hire. I guess you could say mm-hmm. in some cases, other cases, we'll just help people build stuff. Like we rather than writing code, we'll advise on architectural mm-hmm. decisions that type of stuff. But kind of in the ecosystem, you've got like VARs, which don't really exist so much more in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we're much more of like what they call an SI or systems integrator. Okay. Where we take other pieces and kind of put them together. And a lot of the customers are technically ISVs. So you have to do like the hybrid kind of thing where you're starting to build, you know, this part of it in uh, in the cloud, and then you've got to connect it to some of the stuff that's still local. They bring some Oracle database. Yep. With, you know, there's a large part of that. Rats running around inside of it. Especially for larger companies. I mean, they're not going to take everything that they have. It's right. a huge investment and just drop it all in the cloud. So, yeah, there has to be kind of a, a path transition. Right. Is that called hybrid? Yep. Imagine that. Everything's hybrid these days, right? It's all the haptic yep. high fives, hybrids. Right. It's typewriter repair. So how do you, what kind of people do you hire for that? Are you looking for, uh, you know, is it, is it a programmer? Because there's not a lot of DevOps work right? people around here. I mean, there's some. Mm-hmm. So what, how do you do that? What do you, t- what do you take? A person who's either, you know, understands command line stuff and maybe knows a little bit of programming, or do you take a programmer and teach them DevOps? Or? They can go both ways. Um, most of the people on my staff tend to come from the IT operations world, mm-hmm. uh, and they've kind of taught themselves programming languages. Okay. So they, they understand an application. They may have never been in a role where they're kind of part of a team that's developing against some particular spec. So they may be lacking some of the formalized training, but they understand how that stuff works. Mm-hmm. And that, that's super important when you're kind of in this DevOps world because uh, the big thing is the application matters. You know, back in the old IT world, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, as long as I'm providing you these computers with this much CPU and an OS that functions, like the rest of it's up to you to kind of mm-hmm. work with it. Um, what we have to do is really understand how an application works. Where it's bottlenecks? Is it a database? Is it a network throughput? Mm-hmm. And that allows us to kind of build the architecture around those constraints. So it really does require kind of a specialized skill set. Mm-hmm. Though um, that's not something that I'm expecting a lot of people to come you know, put to to the company. So I'm looking for you know, smart people that are super eager to learn new technology. Um, that are kind of shown, you know, a bit of initiative and running it on their own, and we're training them. You know, we're, we're training them mm-hmm. because they just, quite frankly, don't exist. Certainly not in you know, Southeast Michigan. Right. So how do you, like an ideal person, you know, maybe they know Python or Ruby mm-hmm. or C Sharp or something, and can find their way around a command line. But it's generally somebody who's got some Linux background, or we're starting mm-hmm. to do more Windows as well. They understand um, how to automate some things like via scripts or Bash or, yeah. or, or Python. Um, maybe understand some of the tools like Jenkins, which is a continuous integration server. Um, you know, kind of have a, a few ideas of what's going on, and then we we'll basically put them on a, a support role. So you join the company, and you're basically handling tickets and mm-hmm. learning how to fix a, you know, broken things that are uh, been built by the software never breaks. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I only wish that was the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one way one ways we address this by building in a lot of automation. Okay. And then you know, then they eventually graduate where they're helping kind of actually build new stuff. Okay, so what? And so everybody deploys, it, it, or do you have a tiered process where they 
check it in and then somebody reviews it and somebody else deploys? Or? Well, that's for that's going to be based upon what our customers' requirements are. Okay. So we generally have like a, what's called our, our reference deployment. So it's basically, a, a, you know, it's like Jenkins and SaltStack and, and GitHub and um, different type of environments. So you might have your dev, test, your, your QA, your staging, production. Mm-hmm. And you kind of graduate code through those processes mm-hmm. and different QA or um, you know, automated test suites can actually get run against that. So that's kind of generally our, our concept for doing these type of things. But you might tell me rather than using GitHub, you prefer to use uh, Team Foundation Server, which is your Microsoft shop. Well, mm-hmm. we'll just kind of you know, plug that out and plug this other one in, or you're using Subversion rather than Git. You know, we, we can actually. Geek. Yeah. Why would you do that? Well, some people, I mean. I guess, I mean, yeah, if you've got sub- Subversion forever, it's better than, yeah. Switching. Better, better than no source control at all, which is. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, so you don't, it's not necessarily like, uh, um, you know, one of these Y Combinator companies or something where, you know, in your first day you're deploying to production type of a thing. A little bit more conservative than that extreme. Well, we do work with Y Combinator. So I mentioned some of these larger companies. We're working uh-huh. with, we actually work with quite a few startups. Mm-hmm. Generally, they're funded because otherwise they can't really afford our services. Mm-hmm. But even like a lot of these Y Combinator um, companies or any type of incubators, they would still benefit by slowing down a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, by having to kind of work with us and we kind of impose, I guess, some bit of order to their chaos, you know, they learn how to do QA a little bit more and how to promote code and how to properly branch their code. And so you, you're teaching Y Combinator companies the process yep. and working with them? How yep. many? Like half a dozen, a lot of them? Well, about half a dozen or so, but yeah. no, that's not like, Y Combinator, but yes. Yeah. So you're in Ann Arbor and you've got Y Combinator startups mm-hmm. and you're teaching them how to do DevOps. Yep. So that's pretty much, I don't know for those of you in the audience, but that's pretty much like the holy grail of, shit, these guys must know what they're talking about. And Cal Berkeley. Usually, you know, Y Combinator would be telling everybody else what to do or somebody that, that was already in there. But, well, so. they're really good at solving their particular yeah. problem. Right. You know, and that's kind of our value add for these guys. Like, you got some very expensive, talented developers. Yeah. They should be writing code, not right. figuring out how to do the plumbing. Well, what's what the, what's the mantra? If you don't do anything unless it's 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 resulting in user growth, mm-hmm. right? right? So they should, yeah. I mean, really, they should. Everybody at Y Combinator should outsource the whole entire thing to you if they were really following the, the mantra. Mm-hmm. And we're a lot cheaper than hiring a full time DevOps guy in the Bay Area. So. Right. Exactly. And how does that? How does something like that happen? I mean, how do you wind up in Ann Arbor, or you just call it Southeast Michigan, mm-hmm. and you're picking up uh, Y Combinator startups? Um, you're just walking along, and somebody called them, dude. That was actually Cuban gives you a yeah. ring, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, wish. Rams got you on speed dial. That was actually coming through a Back personal connection. Okay. Yeah, I travel out there pretty pretty extensively. You know, mm-hmm. we've got uh, Cal Berkeley is one of our clients. Oh, okay. Um, Intuit's based out of there. Um, there's a few other ones too that come kind of smaller startups. And Intuit's in San Jose. Uh, they're in uh, Mountain View. Okay. In, in San Diego and a few other places. Um, it's just I'm, I'm working to build up my network there because mm-hmm. there's a lot of business there and there's a lot of talent there as well. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what 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 uh, Y Combinator startups you work with? Um, actually, I can't. You can't. Okay. No, unfortunately, I get it. I'm hoping that eventually I can talk about it when we're in your NDA. So. Okay. Cool. All right. But that's an interesting proposition, right? So you, you know, you're based here in southeastern Michigan, and there's there's a lot of benefits, right? Generally speaking, especially you know, with all the universities in the area, right? So University of Michigan, Michigan State, and so forth, and you know, cost of labor out on you know the West Coast, Silicon Valley, uh, incredibly expensive. Do you do you find it challenging to to get business out there, or do you find it like do you, do you get a sense that there's hey, there's a lot of really cool shit going on in Detroit because mm-hmm. in that in this area, and there is. I mean, we talk about this all the time on our show. Just looking up up and down Woodward, but it's you know the whole I ninety four 
quarter as well. So, I mean, do you get a lot of um, feedback from some of your clients or just your interaction and your network out on, on the West Coast um, about about Detroit? And how do you say, you know, hey, you should you should think about us even though we're not in the Valley? That, that can be a challenging conversation. Um, generally, if I can have a conversation with them, though, they know where they're the real deal. Especially if we get vetted and we're introduced from Amazon. You know, kind of pointing at yeah, and they can point to the Amazon site where you're part of the managed services, one of the six. Exactly. That's, that's a big selling point, I would imagine. But yeah, there is definitely this perception. And you know, I mentioned that I, came, I, I was previously employed at a microchip engineering company. This was back in 06, 07. Um, they actually grew out of research at the University of Michigan, could not get funded, so they actually had to relocate out to Sunnyvale, California. So we had the engineering office here in Michigan and the kind of sales and administrative out that way. Um, and then, you know, I used to travel out there fairly frequently and I travel there now for this job. And there is a bit of you know, misconception that we're, we're farmers or we're, you know, <laughs> or we're all working on a line at GM we're or something just, like that. Just tightening bolts on the line somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that, that can be difficult to, to overcome I'm, and I'm not really sure how to, but you know, if they you know, lend me their ear and I can tell them what we've done for other people and you know, what kind of smart people I've got you know, working at Redbury. Um, that's generally easy to overcome, but it's kind of, having an initial conversation can be challenging. Yeah, it's like the personal relationships, right? And that's probably part of the method to your madness of being out there a lot is you're building mm-hmm. your network and, you know, kind of proving through personal contact, not just like, hey, we're in, we're in Ann Arbor, we're in southeastern Michigan, but there's actually some very high, highly qualified people here. By the way, you might want to consider moving here because the cost of living is a fraction of what it is out there. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I, I kind of relate it back to the culture... So you look at Silicon Valley, that's only been around since the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. And Detroit here, we've been building stuff for over 100 years. The original Silicon Valley. Right. I mean, we have a strong culture of, of makers, of creators. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of see what we're doing is just we're, we're repurposing that. Right. So I'm taking you know, the same talent that may have been building cars you know, a generation ago, yet we're building kind of the infrastructure that the internet or large websites mm-hmm. run on. And that's just a, a cool story that I like to tell. Yeah, I, did, does that resonate with uh, with people on the West here, Coast? It does, not so much on the West Coast, really. But here, you know, people. You <laughs> That's know, a bummer. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, but you know, I let our work speak for itself. You know, right. I mean, I really do. So, so how long have you been this globally certified AWS? It's February, uh-huh. I think. And how'd you go about getting that? I mean, um, I mean, it's not like there's like a you don't really just buy a book. It's not like uh, you know you're global architecture certified from Microsoft where there's this whole education path. For that, yeah. And oddly enough, we were actually approached to do the official uh, certification training guide for the certs, and we pass on it because we don't have the to do it. Right. But that's just kind of cool stuff that we're being presented with. And when we actually blog about a particular product, that Amazon, their product engineering teams will engage us on our mm-hmm. blog and stuff like that. So you know, we're doing some very cutting edge stuff here from Southeast Michigan, and you know, part of this has been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why was I one of the first six certified? Because I'd been one of the first six that tried to do it. Right. And it made mistakes and learned how to get better. So when Amazon you know, approached me and says, hey, we're trying to make a formalized program for this, which should be you know, audited, could you please kind of help us define some of the criteria and show us how you're doing things? Right. So it, it's just personal relationships, too. I mean, it's, Amazon is just growing incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. They're not like a Microsoft who's had a partner program for 30 years, right? right. Where you've got a book and stuff like that. Right. It's all about who you know, and that's why I'm out in Seattle pretty frequently, just having lunch with people and you know, meeting with them. Um, yeah, it's just how business deals are done. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon you'll have to be a, like a partner with managed drone services. That's next, right? Yeah. You guys yeah. are already thinking about that, I'm sure. Well, the, the drones I'll leave to somebody else's office. I probably work on the cloud stuff. But yeah, that's, I mean, 
one of our clients actually does do kind of some drone work, and we're, we mentioned the whole big data kind of thing. They're ingesting a lot of data and sensor data, so that, that's a pretty interesting uh, business as well. I was actually uh, came back from Minneapolis uh, two days ago, and on the flight, uh, flight back, I sat uh, next to the guy who wouldn't be an investor in this company that does like drone maintenance. He says they're, they're not betting in any particular industry to adopt maintenance or to adopt drones, but they're investing in this. It's basically uh, hedging their bets. And I thought that's kind of interesting that there's actually companies out there that exist now that fix drones. But. Right. The drone secondary market. All, all three of them, right? But that's the, use, that's use the, drones. But that's the opposite of the typewriter repair person, right? Yeah. It's just they're kind of hedging for the future because that that is going to happen. I you know you, you watch some of that stuff and it's it's pretty interesting stuff and logistically and automation and all the things that, that Mike and I sometimes talk about. There's a lot of data, a lot of information, and therefore, you know, a lot of need for services like what your company provides, you know, because there's just there's this much data now. And imagine, you know, once you see thousands and hundreds of thousands of drones like that or whatever they look like or automated vehicles or automated buses or, you know, there was just a thing on um, automated tractor trailers, which is going to happen. Imagine all the data that I just, it's spellbinding. You like big data. Welcome to the future. Big data. Talk to, talk to Brad about big <laughs> no, data. No, no, talk to him about big data. Things are going to get... I think that phrase is uh, it's either misused or misunderstood or both, yep. right? It's, it is. Yeah. I think it's also, it's a nice uh, word that people like to throw around to. We're the big dude. What does that mean, you know? It means I'm seeking funding, right? right. Is that what it does? Yeah. <laughs> Looking for investors, <laughs> right? Right. Do, are, you know, are enterprises using, uh, you know, speaking of big data or anything, are they using uh, like NoSQL solutions now? Mm-hmm. Is, is, is Mongo... Uh, an acceptable use for a Fortune 500 company now? For sure. Depends on the, your, your data, though. Mm-hmm. So if you've got relational data, relational database makes sense. If it's, you know, unrelational data, you know, data that doesn't have you know, keys amongst each other, then, you know, a document store or a mm-hmm. file system, you know, would make more sense. It really depends on their data. So you look at, there's a lot of traditional applications that are using uh, you know, a SQL database like a Bitbucket, just mm-hmm. some short storage where they put big, huge blobs and stuff in there. Stuff like that doesn't belong in a database. So yeah, you know, for you know, a document type database where you're selling document, you know, JSON structures and stuff like mm-hmm. that, yeah, it makes more sense and that's perfectly acceptable in the, in the enterprise world. Is it a, is it becoming a hybrid now, where you've got, you know, each individual application has some SQL data, some unstructured mm-hmm. data? Yeah, that's is pretty that, is, that, is that the new uh, pattern for enterprises and for people who know what they're doing? Yeah, that is. Mm-hmm. You know. People who put structured data in uh, Mongo, you know, a lot of times you see like user accounts and stuff like that that kind of go in there. But, yeah, my preference is actually kind of put that stuff in a more, you know, more sane, sanely designed schema, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a SQL database, and then your unstructured you know, data you know, belongs in like a Mongo or a Redis or something like that. But then again, if that's the way they want it, I guess that's what they get. Right. So, you know, what percentage of of the big you know, enterprise market is is moving this way. And yeah. which which percentage is like, oh, this this is not happening. It, it's 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 timing. That's one of the exciting things about kind of business right now is that we're absolutely on fire as far as growth grows. It the amount of you know opportunity in front of us is huge. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was single digit percentage the number of enterprises that were actually in pod. Mm-hmm. So the growth is you know huge. And kind of the whole pushback. Um, I'm not really seeing that at a company level, but you will see individual IT departments who are afraid of change, really? afraid of their jobs you know, being outsourced, mm-hmm. and clouds taking things over. You will get some of that. And the first thing that they love to do is point at the boogeyman of security. Right. Like if we can't see the boxes, they must be unsecure or insecure. Which is complete. 
probably the opposite. For sure. I mean, I trust Amazon around a data center better yeah. than 99%. Exactly. I trust right. Amazon more than that, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a core competency of theirs. They right, exactly. So maybe some people in the audience probably, you know, explain um, how Amazon, you know, built their infrastructure to sell books and now everything under the sun um, and their service-oriented architecture mm -hmm. and how that winds up. How does Amazon wind up being the biggest supplier of cloud technology? Yeah, I, it kind of goes back to, you know, Amazon itself was a hyper-growth company for a long time. Mm -hmm. okay. And they had a lot of disparate systems that you know, interconnected and it was just kind of a, a rat's nest of processes and systems. And kind of Jeff Bezos kind of mandated this solar approach. So every single business unit out there had to intercommunicate via these well-defined interfaces. You couldn't have like a backdoor connection mm -hmm. into somebody else's database. They had to communicate via these RESTful web services. So, that, so that, that means like here, you work on this, and then you work on this, and you work on that, mm -hmm. and you can do whatever you want, you can do whatever you want here, and you can do whatever you want here, but they, they need to have an interface to each other. They need right. to be able to communicate with each other. So, right. so and that's, then it, that's the definition of how Amazon is set up. Right. And then they allow people now to utilize the infrastructure for that. Right. So that was kind of laying the groundwork for that and kind of kind of the thinking about how you provision, you know, uh, computers and virtual machines is via this well-defined RESTful interface. Mm -hmm. Well, then the next leap to that was, well, you know, hey, we need 100 times the capacity that we'd normally do to sell stuff during holiday shopping season. Mm -hmm. What do we do with the rest of the, of the servers that we got laying around, you know, February? Mm -hmm. they, they go underutilized. Somebody came up with the idea, well, why don't we lease them out to people? You know, why don't we let our customers actually use them and sell them per hour basis? What would ordinary people want to do with us? Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of how it grew up from there. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Amazon just for the first time actually broke out their, their web services numbers. They're, I think, like a $7 billion a year company. Mm -hmm. They're just on fire. Right. Um, and you get to architect your, your software and your enterprise architecture the same way that Amazon does it for cloud scale. So right. they seem, they probably, Amazon probably knows a thing or two about it. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is that for the longest time, Amazon.com did not run in AWS. Mm -hmm. They actually had a bid for that business. AWS had a bid for Amazon.com and proved that team that they could run that side efficiently. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of an interesting example of kind of eating your own dog food. Yeah, ultimately, yeah, big time. So we talked about earlier in the show about, you know, migrating companies from, you know, kind of the old world of data storage and so forth to the cloud. And we used kind of the, the analogy I like to use was the Dropbox. It's very easy for a person like one of us or Jeff to just sign up for Dropbox or Box using your email address. It's a huge task to migrate a company to the cloud. But from a security standpoint, that's a, that's a huge deal. That's a completely separate issue because you know companies are very they're very concerned about security so how do you guys think about that and how do you guys put your your customers at ease regarding security sure so generally that's the first objection that i'll get when, when talking to a company you know, first one to raise their hand well we can't be spots and secure and i actually really love that conversation because it's a solved problem um amazon and most of the other cloud providers kind of operate what they call a shared security model so your cloud provider is responsible for securing physical access. It's responsible for securing the network and kind of the, the hyper, by hypervisor level kind of security for your particular instance. Everything above that, you're responsible for or your managed service provider is responsible for. And 
you know, the way that we address that is just by you know, appropriately implementing the tools that Amazon gives us, and we kind of work for, for partners that actually enhances that offer. So, you know, that might be kind of your, your audit logging. So anytime anybody changes anything, it actually, you know, logs something in a, in a bucket that's kind of uh, read-only so that I can actually go back and audit it. Or their, their external IT auditors can audit it as well. It's things like very granular level access control. You know, I might be able to help me allow one business unit or even one particular developer to modify that particular server. So you can get very granular with your access controls. And you know, I kind of say that, you know, your cloud gives you enough rope to hang yourself if you're, if you're not careful. But it has some very powerful tools for actually kind of, kind of securing it. And, you know, there, there are companies out there that also kind of enhance that. You know, we're actually working with um, a company called uh, Alert Logic. And Amazon are both coming out here to Detroit and do the shelter at St. Andrews on, uh, on May 21st. And we're actually hosting a, a cloud security event. You can actually talk through some of these things and hear how Alert Logic is solving some of these problems. And Amazon itself are going to be speaking about some of the, you know, the challenges that they've encountered in helping companies secure their data as well. Well, so, you get to be really cool now if you're doing if you're doing cloud security at St. Andrews. Yeah, it's that's like, kind of, it's you like, guys must be like rock stars. Going on. Yeah, we're we're, we're, we're actually going to be uh, having it catered by a, a Pony Dog place and having the whole Fago and kind of we're doing the complete Detroit yeah. experience. So complete, yeah, well, you know, there it is. That's that's it. When is that? That is on May twenty first. May twenty first at St. Andrews. Yep, it's um, should do that in like our really cool radio voice guy. Yeah, and here's actually the website for it. Probably can't. Imagine that. Can't really. It's because devopssecurity.splashthat.com slash rb, uppercase rb. Yeah, we'll put that in the bottom of the screen so we don't have to keep saying it because I don't know what you just said, but it'll be on the screen. See it? It's right down there right now. So that was that was pretty magical. So where does that perception come if the, if the cloud, and we were talking earlier about the cloud inherently is more safe than some other uh feature sets or products or whatever, where does that perception come from or how does that propagate, you know, that it's not safe and they're concerned about safety if in fact the cloud is safer, generally speaking, than other other types of storage services? I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that you have to trust somebody else to do something for you. So you know, I've got to trust Amazon or in a security data center, which they do. They've got practically every single security certification under the sun. But you know, a lot of people just have difficulty. like. You know, if I'm running a large data center company, I can actually physically visit the data center and see that the doors are locked and I've got an armed guard out front or whatever. You know, when I'm, I'm going to trust Amazon to do that. You know, I don't have the opportunity to actually see that from my own eyes. That can be somewhat a difficult way to accommodate that. Yeah, so it's like the security box that you can't go to the bank and open up and see, right? It's right. like one of those things where you, you can't. It's like Woody Allen once said, I don't trust in the air that I can't see. Um, but you know, it's kind of that one of, one of those things where it's like they can't really see it, so they don't know if it's safe, and so maybe that's where some of that perpetuates. Right. I mean, I think a lot of it's analogous to after the Great Depression, they'll be trusted the bank, so they take their money and stash under the bed, but so that way they can actually see that. Right. And you know, we've kind of grown past that where I trust, you know, Fifth Third or whoever's got the money not to have it disappear someday. Or if it does disappear, they've got an audit trail to find it again. Well, uh, before we do, we, we should probably uh, give some props to Grand Circus, the folks here at Grand yeah, Circus, who uh, very here. kindly let us uh, have our podcast here. And want to thank uh, Jamie again for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a great show. We appreciate you coming down here, and hopefully it's one of many more. Cool. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Thank you. Time to drink bourbon. Exactly. All in favor, say aye. 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 The ayes have it, Jeff. No? What? Beer? Um, You're okay, drinking bourbon. Maybe. In a firm maybe.